This morning we will be in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Our passage today uh, comes at kind of the, the middle, really it is the middle of everything that Paul is trying to say to the Ephesians. And in, we see, we've seen that in 1 through 3, he's diving into a lot of doctrine. And Nathan has called this, this section the depth of God's grace. And as we move into 4 through 6, which is the lived out and love, the practical side of this theology, Paul has put this prayer right in the middle. It's, a, it's almost a transition from one section to the other. It helps us move along in that transition. Um, and I'll read it, and then we're going to pray. For this reason, verse, or Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with, the, with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, that according to the power it has work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for your word and, and for the truth that is in it. I pray that you would speak through me this morning that my words would be your words, and you'd open up the hearts of those that are here to listen, God. Thank you for this church and um, the commitment to truth that is here. In Jesus' name, amen. So I went, to, I went to high school up north. I didn't grow up in Tehachapi. And like most California high school students, I took four years of Spanish. Well, five years. I took intro to Spanish, Spanish one, two, three, four. Um, and I remember none of it. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And I will say, uh, this is completely my fault. Nothing against my Spanish teacher. Sorry, Senora Sellers. Um, but I remember nothing of it. And it's the same with biology. I don't remember anything in biology. My dad was an animal science major in college, so that's probably disappointing to him a little bit. I remember that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And that's because that's an internet meme. But I took, I took four years of Spanish, and like I said, I remember absolutely nothing. And the only Spanish phrase that I really do know comes from an old El Paso tacos commercial where they're debating, like, do we want soft-shell tacos? Do we want hard-shell tacos? And the little girl goes, por qué no los dos? Which means, why not both? <laughs> that phrase is completely useless. I can't order with it nothing. I can order both hard and soft-shelled tacos. But all that to say that this prayer in the middle of Ephesians is kind of Paul praying, it is Paul praying that the Ephesians would not let their doctrine, that, the, that he has taught them, everything that he has taught them, that the, it would not go to waste. That they wouldn't just remember bits and pieces of it, but that it would be lived out in love. That it would change the way that they live that they would remember it and apply it to their lives every single day for the rest of their lives. And that's probably why I don't, or I didn't really work hard in Spanish, was because I didn't see it being practical in my life. And in all honesty, it hasn't, you know, I, I have had zero use for any Spanish that I would have known. Um, but the Ephesian, the, what Paul is teaching has practical use for every single day in our lives. 
And Paul is praying here that they would not lose that. They would not lose that knowledge that they wouldn't waste or they wouldn't lose the time that they have spent studying and gain, gaining knowledge for it to only be wasted. And that should be a prayer for us in our church today, that what we learn every single Sunday and what we should be learning every single day of the week wouldn't go to waste, that it would change and shape who we are. And that's what Paul means in Ephesians 3.14 when he says, for this reason— for this reason, what I have been talking to, talking to you Ephesians about, for this reason I bow my knees in prayer. So what is he referring to? Um, we, saw, we saw a couple weeks ago that Ephesians 3.1, it starts exactly the same as, as 3.14. It says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he goes off on a rabbit trail, which... His rabbit trails are far better than my rabbit trails. My rabbit trails either have to do with football or you can ask the high schoolers Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> it's not real Mexican food, by the way. I don't hold to that. Um, but Paul's, Paul's tangent, his rabbit trail, whatever you want to call it, further cements everything he has been teaching. It further cements this idea, this command for unity within the Ephesian church that the Jews and the Gentiles would put aside the dividing wall of hostility and would come together in love and in unity. When, he, when Paul's talking about this, this reason, he's referring specifically to chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, when he talks to the Ephesians about their pre-Christian lives, that before they were saved, this is what their lives looked like. And then he says, now that you have been saved— Live like this. Put down that wall of, of hostility. Put aside your differences and love each other and live together in unity. Because of where you've come from and because of who you are now, live in unity. And that, like I said, that section 3, 1 through 13 further cements it. It, it makes this prayer, what we, we're, we're looking at this morning, far more powerful. It, it's almost like when you hear someone do something good, and it's like, okay, that's cool, like, rabbit trail, football. Um, I'm a Raiders fan, and the Raiders drafted a, a running back named Josh Jacobs, and after he was drafted, I mean, he makes millions and millions of dollars now, he bought his dad a house. And when you hear that, it's like, okay, cool, like every pro athlete at some point buys their parents something as a thank you for everything. But when you hear the backstory, it cements it even more. Josh Jacobs growing up was homeless, he lived, in, he lived with his family in his, in his dad's car, and they slept in the car. They would spend nights in parking lots. And he says, he himself has said that he don't, doesn't think he ever saw his dad sleep out of protection for his family. He grew up homeless, and when you know that, it makes him buying his dad a house even more incredible, right? It makes that far more powerful and that's what Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 does for us. It further cements what Paul has been teaching. It brings everything into perspective, and it's a necessary rabbit trail. It's, it's needed to fully understand what Paul is saying. In Ephesians 2, 14 to 15, he says, For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And then Ephesians 3, 6 says, this mystery, what he's been talking about, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It is for this reason, unity between Jew and Gentile, that Paul is praying. It's a mystery that was revealed to him and to the apostles, and it wasn't just Paul that was preaching it. It was every single apostle that was telling people to be united in Christ despite divisions in the church, despite the two groups that absolutely hated each other. They were supposed to come together in love, in unity, as one new person. And that's the purpose of Paul's prayer. Every prayer that we pray should have a purpose. A lot of the times we'll fall into that mechanical um, prayer, especially before dinner, and just go through it because we know we're supposed to pray. But Paul here shows us that our prayers should have purpose, that there has to be meaning behind our prayers. That's why God, or Jesus told us, or says the, um, the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Ironically, that's turned into a mechanical prayer. But that the reason that Jesus says that in Matthew uh, 6, I believe, is because he wants us to pray meaningful prayers and to go away from the mechanical prayers that the, the Pharisees were showing or were doing. Um, so this prayer has a very specific purpose. And Nathan talked about this last week, the dangers of going slowly through Ephesians, which for us is necessary because we don't get all the cultural um, implications of what's going on. But the, one of the two dangers of going slowly through Ephesians is that we lose that connection between first through third, the Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6, that we lose the connection between that deep theology and then the practical ways of living it out. So this prayer is supposed to guide us and remind us that there is a specific reason that Paul is writing to the Ephesians for love and for unity. And that's what he's praying about, that we would be united in Christ regardless of what our hobbies or our interests or our political leanings, we would be united for one sole purpose, and that's bringing God glory. So this purposeful prayer actually breaks down to three separate purposes, and that'll that'll be the three main points for our sermon this morning. The first purpose is for the purpose of being strengthened. The second is for the purpose of knowing love. And the third is for the purpose of being fulfilled. But before we dive into that, we have to understand who Paul is praying to. I mean, the, the answer is easy. It's, it's God. He says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on, in heaven and on earth is named. But Paul addresses God in a very specific way. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And when I first read this, that, that phrase, every family in heaven, really caught me off guard because I've never heard that before. My first reaction was probably, really, Nathan? Of all the passages in Ephesians. Um, but as when we dive deeper into it, it becomes more simple. It's that from is the origin. So every family in heaven and on earth comes from God. It's the same kind of phrasing that's used in all the genealogies in Scripture. That we see it's from Adam and then all the, all the list of names 
And it's really addressing God as the creator, as the sovereign God who created everything in the world and is the head of everything. It's referring to God in almost a national sense, that it is him who is our authority. We answer to God and he's the one who guides us. It is the heavenly father, creator of all things, that Paul lifts up to this prayer. The heavenly father who he has said over and over and over again gives generously to us. That he blesses us and and gives to us generously because he is wealthy. Because he has more blessings than we could ever possibly imagine. It is to this God that Paul is praying. And the first purpose is for the purpose of being strengthened. Verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's saying that he wants us to be strengthened in our inner being for unity. That we would recognize that it's more than just positional unity. When we declare faith in Christ, we're all made one. We're all one person positionally. But he's calling us to live that out practically in our lives. That we would live this out in love. And he appeals to the riches of God's glory on behalf of the Ephesians. In three one, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Ephesians, and then goes on his tangent. And you can plug this prayer right in there. And it could say, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, on behalf of you, I am praying this prayer. And he's appealing to the wealth that he has stressed throughout this, this whole letter, that God is a God who gives generously and is wealthy beyond our, our wildest, wildest imagines. And he generously pours out that wealth upon us. In essence, he's asking God to grant the, what he's about to request. He's, a, he's asking God to grant it according to the wealth of his essential being, that he's praying to God, appealing to his character. It's similar to how Abraham in Genesis 18 appealed to God's righteousness in his prayer. That God, because he is righteous, would do this. And Paul is saying, God, because you are wealthy, grant us this blessing of love and of unity. Because your resources are limitless, God, bless us with love and unity. He's praying that we would be endowed with the divine resources that he's talked about over and over and over again, that we would recognize too that this is a gift of grace, that this love that we have isn't anything that we created or or that we found on our own, but it's only through Christ Jesus that we get this love. And we aren't going to get this with a specific prayer or with a specific three-step process, but Paul says that it's, that we get this because we are strengthened with power, with his power through his spirit in our inner person. In an earlier prayer in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know God's power. And here he's praying that they would receive this power in order that they would be strengthened through his spirit. He requests the power for the purpose of love and unity. And and the word that he's using here for power is, it's this idea of power attained through exercise. And it's said passively so that it's clear that, yes, this is attained over time, over, over hard work, but it's only given to us. We don't 
get this strength on our own. That it's God who began a good work in us and will finish it to completion. It's through his spirit we're strengthened in our inner person. The same spirit that Jesus talks about in John 14, verse 16, when he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to, to be with you forever. The Spirit is that helper, and when we profess faith in Christ, we receive the Spirit, and he strengthens us because we need it. We can't do this on our own. We can't become more righteous on our own. If it were up to me, I'd just be stagnant and, and not moving forward in my faith. I'd pray a prayer. I'd, I'd, I would have walked down the aisle and then thought, yep, I'm good. Got my ticket into heaven. But God calls us to more than just that. He calls us to live a life of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 7 both indicate that this work is not up to us, but it's up to God. He's speaking about that balance of, of our, our work that we're required to do to move forward in our faith, but also the strength and the power that God uses, and it's that mystery of, of God's sovereignty and free will that we won't ever fully understand. In verse 17, he says that, that um, this strengthening through his spirit is so that Christ would d- dwell in our hearts through faith. And at first, it sounds like it's talking about the, the indwelling of Christ that is received when you profess faith, but it's, it's more than that. It's the progressive nature of the indwelling of Christ. It's the sanctification process that he's talking about. When he says dwell, he's specifically talking about permanent residency in our lives, that Christ would become a fixture in our hearts, that he would be the foundation for everything that we do And part of that is the process of sanctification. The inner inner person that he's talking about is the very core of who we are. That Christ would be would dwell at the very core of us. That it would be the central he would be central to who we are. And with this part of the prayer, I mean we're two verses in, a verse and a half in, and we're already seeing all aspects or all parts of the Trinity. He's praying to the Father that the Spirit would strengthen us so that Christ would dwell deeply within us and be a permanent resident in our heart. That he would be the the core of who we are and that we would recognize the, the vitalness of the Spirit and of Jesus in our sanctification process. That as we become more righteous, we realize that it's God who is working in us, not ourselves. So the first purpose is to be strengthened but it's for a specific reason. All of these purposes build upon each other. It's, it's like, pre, like prereqs that you have to take for class. You're not going to take Algebra 2 before you take Algebra 1. And in, in the same way, we're not going to be, we can't know the love of Christ, which is the next purpose, without the strengthening of God through his Spirit. Verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Paul's request for strengthening wasn't purposeless. It, had a spe- it has a specific reason that we, would be, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, but he gives us, there's an expectation in there that we would have already been rooted and grounded in love. And this isn't a love that, that we just create on our own. It's, it's that same idea that this is a love that comes from God. Not anything that we found, because if it was a love that 
I found that I created myself, it'd be a love for people that had the same interests, opinions, beliefs, or whatever that I have. But this love that, that Paul is talking about is one that comes from God that transcends all obstacles and barriers. That is the love that we should be rooted and established in. And he uses those two metaphors very specifically because it, I mean, for us, we, it brings us specific images to mind. When, when something's rooted in something, like a tree, an oak tree, country oaks, for instance, and it's strong and, and powerfully rooted in something, you don't just push it over. I can't just go push over those trees in the parking lot because their roots are so strong. That's the kind of rooted that Paul is talking about. And that grounded in love is the, the idea of building, that we build upon the love that God has given us, that it nourishes us rooted, and that we build upon it because we are grounded in it. Established is another word that could be used there. Established on God's love. One theologian simply puts it this way. He says, Christian love always has its source in God. That as we transition to the, Ephesian, or the, the second half of Ephesians, the lived out in love portion, we would recognize that that love solely comes from God. That it, the source of that love is God and God alone. That's what Paul's talking about here, that, it's the, that we are established upon God's love. And for, for a specific reason, in order that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, that we'd be able to comprehend it, that we'd be able to grasp it mentally. And he's not saying that we could fully understand it because he says himself that it surpasses all knowledge, but it's that idea that we are beginning to to understand it, that we are working to understand it. And he doesn't want us to do this alone. He says that we are to comprehend with all the saints, that we come together like, church, like in, a, in a place like this, like church, and in fellowship with one another, work to understand the love of Christ better. He's saying that we can't do this on our own. We can't do our faith. We can't live out our faith by ourselves. We can't understand the love of Jesus by ourselves. That we have to do it in the context of church, of other believers. And that's why our church leadership has pushed small groups so much because we're meant to live in fellowship with other believers. We're meant to come together more than just on a Sunday and to discuss and to learn more about Christ's love. He's saying that a believer must be surrounded with all the saints, that we must live in fellowship with one another in order to properly understand or to properly begin to understand Christ's love. And that love he describes as the breadth and length and height and depth and to, to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. It's a similar picture that he paints in Romans 8, verse 38, when he says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things yet to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus describes his love as this. He says in John 15, Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. His love is the greatest love that could ever be displayed. 
that he would die on our behalf, a rebellious people, so that we would know God and be saved. So that we would be made righteous in the eyes of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And in order to receive that love, Jesus simply says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you declare him Lord and Savior, he sees us as friends. He sees us as people that he died for on the cross. And all we need to do is declare him Lord and Savior and follow his commands. Repent and believe. And this love is far beyond our human capabilities to understand. We can start to grasp, to, we can start to comprehend it, but that's very different. Comprehending something is very different than fully understanding it. That word comprehend, it's this idea that we, like I said, start to wrap our minds around it. But the more we study it, the more we realize we don't understand it. It's like when you look up at the night sky and, I mean, you know that those are stars, you know what they're made up of. Um, But the more you look at it, the more that you're amazed and realize you don't understand it, right? The more you stare at at the heavens or, I haven't been there, but I've heard the Grand Canyon is the same way, the more that you are amazed at it. The more we study the love of God and the love of Christ, the more we are amazed by it. We know what all these words mean, but we just can't fully understand it. I equate it to, to the love that a father has for a child. I've experienced it as a child. I've heard it talked about. I've heard people describe it. But a lot of the times it's indescribable. They can't, like fathers can't find the words to explain it. And I won't understand it until I myself am a father. I've heard it talked about, heard it sung about. I've experienced it from my own father. But I just don't, fully get it. And we can't, in that same way, we can understand what all the words mean, we can understand how the phrases work, we can understand theology behind it, but we won't fully understand it. We may never fully understand it. One commentator says this about the love of Christ. He says, no matter how much knowledge we have of Christ and his work, his love surpasses that knowledge. No matter how much we read the Bible, no matter how many degrees we get, how many sermons we listen to, Christ's love surpasses even that. It's far beyond our full comprehension. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And when we look at how Paul talks about it, I mean, he knows a lot about it. His words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when we see, when we look at how much knowledge he has about it, and yet he says that it surpasses all knowledge, it should really bring that into perspective for us. This prayer is something that we should be praying every day, that we would better understand the love of Christ. And through that knowledge and through that understanding, live it out. And that's something that I am preaching to myself here, that I would I should be praying to better understand the love of Christ, to better understand who he is and, and what he did and see how great his love truly is. But that knowledge of, that love, of, of Christ's love is, again, for a specific reason. The third purpose, for the purpose of being filled. Verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What Paul's saying here isn't that we would be put on the same level of God, as God. We wouldn't be made into gods ourselves. Um, 
but he's saying that we should be striving to be righteous just like God is righteous. That we would be filled with God's moral excellence and power, and that should be understood, or that is the same in the same vein as knowing the love of God, that we would be living a life that is filled with God's moral excellence because we understand the love of Christ. And it's, we have to also understand that it's only through this strengthening and understanding of love that we are able to live out this kind of life, that we are able to experience God's moral excellence, perfection, and power which results in love and unity in the church, regardless of obstacles or divisions that the world say are too much to overcome. We have to recognize that this love moves us from just positionally being united and being one in Christ to actually experiencing it and living it out. That we are all one in Christ and that now we would act like it, is what Paul is saying. It's what Ephesians is saying. It's what God is calling us to, to live lives that live out this unity. And through this unity, Jesus says, we would point others to him. It's through our love for one another that we point others to Christ and bring God glory. That we point others to God's redemptive work through Christ, which changed everything. This prayer paves the way for the practical outworking of our unity. That This prayer is that, tra- that perfect transition, that inspired transition from theology to practicality. From soul doctrine to actually Paul telling us how to live out the love of Christ that he's talked about. A- a- another way to say that we would be filled up with all the fullness of God is that we'd be filled up to the fullness of God, that the purpose of this prayer is ultimately that in our love and in our unity and in our understanding of the scriptures and of God and of theology, that we would be made righteous like God is righteous, that we would be holy, a holy community that points others to Christ and brings God glory. It communicates this idea of completeness, that the work that God began in us is brought to completion that it's finished. That the more we know about love, the more we live out that love. And the more we live out that love, the more we reflect Christ. And the more that, and because of that, the more we are filled up with the fullness of God, the more that we are fully sanctified. And isn't that what we all want as Christians? That we would be made righteous? That we would experience true righteousness? That there would be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more shame, no more sin, that we'd be able to experience God face to face. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's the fullness that God requires of us. That fullness is what he's praying we'd be filled with once we know the love of Christ and once we're strengthened by the Spirit. And then Paul closes this prayer out in a very specific and important way. He says, Now to him, in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is reminding us with this doxology of of who this is all possible from, of who makes this all 
possible, that we don't just get caught up in verses 16 through 19 and, and think about the love and the unity and the strengthening that comes from Christ, but that we remember the purpose of all of it, which is to bring God glory. God does all of this so that we would glorify him through our lives. And we will recognize that it's only through God that this is possible. And because it's only through God, he is the one who gets all the glory. He rightfully gets all the praise. He's rightfully the one that we sing to every single week, the one that we pray to every single day. He's given us everything and he deserves all praise is what Paul is saying here. And he's praising him because God is able to do far more infinitely than, or he's able to do more infinitely beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's ability far surpasses any prayer or, or our wildest imaginations. He's saying that he, I mean, he is praying what seems like an impossible prayer, that there would be no divisions and no uh, disunity in the church but he understands that God's ability is far more than our wildest imaginations. It's an appropriate prayer for the ongoing action um, that's going on in the life of the Ephesian church. It's a prayer that, I'll be honest, I don't pray, I don't think I've ever prayed thanking God for an ongoing action. I've prayed and praised God for something that he has done in my life, I've prayed and requested for things to, for him to do in my life, but it's, it's pretty rare that I recognize what God is currently doing in my life at this exact moment and give him praise for it. If I do, I usually just ask him to continue that work in my life. But we should be praising him for what he is currently doing, and Paul is doing that. Because it, I mean, this, like I said, this is, an impossible, it's seemingly impossible prayer. One commentator says that no human could ever imagine that the Jews and Gentiles could function together in one body. But the infinite and matchless power of love that each believer possesses through Christ should give us the confidence that something like this is possible in our own lives. Our current culture is, it's so incredibly divided. It would be it's a seemingly impossible prayer that our love could overcome those divisions that are currently in our culture. That our love could overcome politics and cultural differences. Um, that our love could bring us together regardless of the op- seemingly impossible odds. This is the impossible prayer that Paul is praying and giving God the glory for. And he says, in the church, and in Christ Jesus, forever, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the only time we see that phrase, in the church and in Christ Jesus. He's praising God for the work of the church, for what God has done in the church and bringing together some unity already. He's praising God for what the church is and what it's going to be. And that's only possible through Christ Jesus. And this, this doxology, this praise, he says, will go on forever. He's praying that the praise would go on forever. For that the phrase, that it, the it, Greek idiom that's used there is like a singular generation and then ongoing generations. That in our generation, 
glory would be given to God. And then the next generation, every generation that follows, God would receive the glory because of what he has done in Christ in bringing people together and in bringing people to him. To repairing the disunity between God and man that occurred in Genesis 3. He's saying that God deserves the praise forever and ever because of what Paul is praying for. That the church would be strengthened through the Spirit, that together we would better understand Christ's love. And because we better understand it, we'd live it out and it would lead to our sanctification. And ultimately, what everything we, should, what we, what everything we are doing should point to the glory of God, that the depth of God's grace would be lived out in love in our lives. That we would move from just doctrine to practical theology, to living out what God has taught us through the scriptures, through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for Paul and for the scriptures that you have, you have given us and what you have revealed to us. I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, that we would be strengthened at our very core so that we would know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. I pray that we would be so filled with this love that it would be obvious to everyone around us, that we would be united in a way that the world has never seen, God. Thank you for your love and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.